Mr. Chief Justice, the police of the court. Can you remember the first time that you actually like walked into the clinic and got heroin that taxpayers paid for? This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Heroin is illegal in Canada. And just like in the United States, many doctors and treatment centers treat heroin addiction by providing a legal alternative such as methadone. But methadone treatment doesn't always work. So what do you do? Reporters Sam Fenn and Gordon Keddick take us to a clinic in Vancouver, British Columbia that's giving their patients legal access to the very drug they're addicted to, heroin. Our story is Heroin Town. We're in an empty lot off a back alley in downtown Vancouver. Christmas lights are strung up outside a mobile trailer, and a dozen people are hanging around smoking and chatting. This is one of five overdose prevention sites that has popped up in the past year. So what are you doing with the tinfoil? I'm cutting um, tinfoil because people use it to smoke heroin or anything like that. So. This is Sammy. Vancouver's Health Authority is paying her and her colleagues to supervise people as they shoot up. Some of the staff here are former drug users themselves. Some are current drug users, and others are activists and nurses. Uh, what brought me here was the, the amount of ODs that are going on. Working here is keeping me sober, to tell you the truth. Really? It is. I'm hoping I can save more lives. How, how many people do you think you've saved? I've saved nine already in the past last year. People check in with Sammy when they arrive at the trailer, and she writes down the time and the drug that they're using tonight. Down means heroin. Rock means crack. Down at 531. Rock at 535. Down 541. Down 552. Down 552. Powder 552. Rock 554. Hundreds of people come to this trailer every day, and they've all bought their drugs illegally. But the Vancouver Police Department say it's a health issue, not a law enforcement issue. They'll monitor the sites, but they're not going to shut them down. I smoke my, my heroin with my rock, so it kind of like, keeps it balanced. This is Bernadette. She's a thin woman with no teeth. Bernadette says she comes to this trailer in case she overdoses. Dealers in Vancouver have been selling drugs laced with fentanyl, a powerful synthetic opiate. So no one really knows what's in their street drugs anymore. So um, I've heard rumors about being it in the rock, right? So I'm not sure, right? So have you guys heard of that? No? You haven't yet? No? Bernadette sits at a steel table inside the trailer. She pulls out a compact mirror and a syringe. She injects into the jugular vein in her neck. There you go. Free <laughs> and simple. Okay. Now, okay, I know it's not fentanyl right now. Okay. Yeah, I'm high right now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> You're unfair there, okay? Down the street at another overdose prevention site, a middle-aged guy named Doyle is sitting on a fold-out chair. His head is hung low. A staff member named Dakota looks over at him, and then... You've got an overdose... Bring him down. Where's the O2 monitor? Here. 
Another staff member jams a needle full of a drug called Narcan into his leg, right through his jeans. Narcan can reverse an overdose. Oxygen's at 59. Okay, do you know how to hook? Doyle isn't breathing. He's turning blue. Come on, bro. Big breaths. Big breaths. You gotta take some deep breaths for me, buddy. You're having an overdose, okay? Mr. Cody, here we got you. 65, 68. Big breaths, Doyle. Big breaths. Keep breathing. Big breaths, Doyle. Come on, buddy. 68, 74, 76, 79, 80, 82, 84. Yeah, he's coming back up. Yeah, just keep breathing nice and gentle, okay? Doyle starts moving around again. He says he's okay. Hey, Doyle. He's breathing on his own now. And then life goes on at the site, just like it never happened. In 2016, Nearly a 1,000 people died of drug overdoses in British Columbia. Over half of those deaths were linked to fentanyl. At one point, the coroner's service reported that Vancouver's morgues were, quote, frequently full, so they began storing bodies at local funeral homes. This isn't just a Vancouver problem. There have been overdose spikes in Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Ohio, Rhode Island, West Virginia, all linked to fentanyl. But there's one place in North America where drug users legally avoid this game of Russian roulette. It's here, in Vancouver, just two blocks from where Doyle overdosed. It's 10 o'clock in the morning. We're outside an unremarkable-looking concrete building, right next to a country music bar. This used to be a bank. Now it's Crosstown Clinic. So this is the injection side of the clinic. Uh, people line up here. Scott McDonald is the doctor in charge at Crosstown Clinic. McDonald says after his patients are buzzed in, the staff take them through a checklist. Yes or no? Uh, severely anxious or agitated? Uh, dyskinetic? Overly sedated? Do they have slurred speech? Do they smell of alcohol? If everything checks out, the patients walk into what McDonald calls the IR, or injection room. So I am Julie Foreman. I'm an RN and the coordinator of Crosstown Clinic. Foreman walks us past stainless steel tables. These are the eight injection stations. At each station, there's a little kidney basin with alcohol swab, Band-Aids, and some Kleenex and paper towel. The patients walk into the injection room. They form a line in front of a thick glass window. A nurse in blue scrub sits on the other side of the glass, preparing syringes in a cramped room. Um, or as the nurses describe it, as the cage or a fishbowl because of all the windows. And uh, we've got a nurse right now administering meds, so let's go take a look. Hi. Uh, the client comes to the window here. Uh, they give me their name, date of birth. Um, I've got their syringes all lined up, ready to go. Uh, then I just check. I scan their name, dispense, and then they're good to go. A tall guy with a gaunt face approaches the glass. His name is Kevin Thompson. He talks to the nurse through a baby monitor. The nurse pushes Thompson's syringe through a slot in the window. It drops into a box like it's a pack of cigarettes at a security-conscious gas station. 
What does it say on there? Is that like your dose? Yeah, it tells you your dose. The amount of heroin they're giving me. Heroin. The nurses call it by its scientific name, diacetylmorphine. Thompson walks away from the window holding his syringe. He leans up against one of the stainless steel tables and pulls his jeans and boxers down a couple of inches. He's holding his pants up with one hand and his syringe in the other. And then I just poke it in my butt. I just go right in, yeah, in your muscle, basically. Thompson is on the highest possible dose the doctors will prescribe. He says if he shoots up that much into a vein, he'll go through the roof. So instead, he injects directly into a muscle. But this needle tip isn't working. He asks a nearby nurse for a new one. Can I get another 7 Thompson struggles for a while, and then he gets it through. It takes a while because there's so much. How I do it. He wipes himself clean and drops the syringe into a plastic box. You got to be a member to be in here. <laughs> I love this place. What for this place, it would probably be dead. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thompson says he comes to Crosstown three times a day, every day, to get heroin produced by a small Swiss pharmaceutical company. It's prescribed by a doctor and administered by a nurse, and it's paid for by Canadian taxpayers. Today, Thompson is one of only 91 people in all of North America whose addiction to heroin is treated with prescription heroin. To explain how this unique approach to drug treatment came about, we have to take you back to 2005. Thompson is living in Vancouver in an area known as the downtown east side. It's one of North America's largest open-air drug markets. Ended up being homeless. Uh, you'd fall asleep on this street before. If you fell asleep and, you know, nodded off, you were done. <laughs> your pant pockets were cut out. And people, I mean, that's how bad it is. Your shoes are off your feet, your jacket. I don't care if it's rain, wind, or snow. <laughs> you were robbed. <laughs> Thompson says he frequently wakes up dope sick which feels like he has a horrible fever with body aches and tight muscles. And Thompson says that the only way to make the pain stop is to get more heroin. And to do that, he needs money. So he steals things, big things. Walk in the store and just take it, right? It's, uh, you know, the bigger the thing, the least obvious. Cooking two TVs and two skill saws and put them on, stack them. And then an employee come running out the other door and open the door for me and take it. No one's going to expect somebody with balls to do that. Well, really, yeah, they just assume they pay for it, right? <laughs> and so this is pretty much Thompson's life. Wake up dope sick, steal something, buy heroin, and hide from the cops. Until one day, a guy walks up to Kevin and says, I'm recruiting for a clinical trial. We're going to be giving out heroin. Do you want to sign up? Yeah, I thought it was set up first. <laughs> and, well, that's just the way they can uh, keep eye on us, right? What's going on here? Trying to get us corralled or down into all of us in one little section and then just going to arrest us all or, you know, you never know. Um, uh, it was called Naomi, North American Opioid Medication Initiative. 
This is Martin Schechter. He's a professor with the School of Population and Public Health at the University of British Columbia. Schechter says since the late 1990s, he's wanted to know the answer to one question. What do you do with someone with uh, heroin addiction or opioid addiction who has tried the therapies that we have available and they haven't been successful, those therapies? So, for example, methadone. Methadone is the standard treatment for heroin addiction. But Schechter says it doesn't work for everybody. And when somebody has tried methadone twice, three times, four times, and they keep returning to street drugs, what do you do? These people are currently um, injecting heroin in alleyways, uh, facing overdose and risk of disease and causing all kinds of problems for the public. Why wouldn't you want them to be getting the heroin from a doctor to bring them in off the street and in contact with the healthcare system? And so Schechter decides to start a clinical trial. There, there were a million hurdles, each one of which could have been a deal breaker. Schechter secures an $8 million grant. He holds meetings with neighborhood groups. He gets ethics board approval. He applies for a permit from City Hall. He asks the United Nations for special permission to import heroin from Switzerland. And at the government's request, his staff go through hostage training. They were very afraid this heroin would escape into the community. So we had armored car deliveries, and we had maglock panic buttons and alarms, and uh, we actually had it in a bank and we used the vault that was still there. Ironically, the amount of, of, of drugs we had on site was probably less than your average pharmacy. Ohenya oviedo Yukis is an associate professor in the School of Population and Public Health at the University of British Columbia. I was working in Spain in another clinical trial testing uh, injectable uh, pharmaceutical grade heroin, and, and I joined uh, the team of Martin Schechter. Her research focuses on alternative treatments for drug users. Treatment with injectables have a very small but very important role in the addiction treatment system. This is a statement on how do you want to treat your most vulnerable individuals that are right now injecting in the street and putting their life at risk. Schechter and Oviedo Yukis recruit 192 participants, people they call highly entrenched drug users. These are people who have used heroin for years, some for decades, and they've repeatedly failed conventional treatments. The three-year trial begins at Crosstown Clinic in March of 2005. Each participant will be on the trial for 15 months, and Schechter randomly assigns half the participants to methadone and the other half to heroin. Kevin Thompson is in the heroin group. Yeah, it's great, because you're thinking, hmm, well, I can take any amount of heroin they're going to give me, I'm going to take it. They sit there and say, look, don't worry about the dope. We've got more than you can do. It's all pharmaceutically done, so there's no infections. You're in a sterile area. I don't have to go rob or steal, or boom, all I have to do is wake up in time. <laughs> If you've been struggling every day to get your fix, up to three or four times a day, and all of a sudden you don't need to do that at all, that's a dramatic change. Dr. McDonald says almost immediately after the trial begins, he starts to see improvement in Thompson and many of his other patients. Started going for walks, uh, you know, 
seeing stuff and realizing, hey, you know what, I haven't been, I live on the ocean a block away and I hadn't even been down to the ocean basically and paid attention to it in the 20 years I've been here, 25 years. I mean, I remember one patient who was uh, probably had not showered in months and one was living in a box under some steps in the downtown east side and uh, within a within a week reconnected with his family was living with his uncle and uh, was showered and clean thing he said hey doc things are going better and i said i'm glad to hear it <laughs> and the results were awesome this is Diane Tobin. She's one of the participants in the trial. She's also a community organizer. Their crime rate went down, their hospitalizations went down, their uh, overdoses went down, and they were starting to think about a future. Tobin says that not having to worry about how and where she's going to get her next fix means she can think about rebuilding her life. I was able to focus on my job a lot more and... Uh, not have to be out there worrying about spending my money. I was able to save some money. Yeah, I had my steady job, my life. Uh, have housing, had a girlfriend, had a job. Uh, I wasn't using street dope, haven't been arrested. No contact with the police, they don't mess with me no more. Uh, yeah, it was great. As the Naomi trial is coming to an end, researchers Schechter and Oviedo Yukis say the preliminary results look good. And based on these results, they're hopeful they can convince the government to let the clinic continue, even after the clinical trial is over. Well, that's what we all hope when we do research. You show that it's effective, you show that it's cost-effective, and it's going to be considered to be implemented. You know, I'm a medical anthropologist, and I always tell my students that medicine is much more than science. Dan Small is an adjunct professor of medical anthropology at the University of British Columbia. He's traveled throughout Europe researching other heroin trials, and he says all of the randomized control trials have shown good results, but in many cases... It never leaves the randomized control realm. It never gets its medical exemption, because certain controversial things like supervised injection facilities and heroin-assisted therapy stay forever in a kind of a liminal zone of the temporary exemption provided to them. And this is largely what's happened in the wider world. Small says it's politically easier to start controversial treatments in the context of a study. But the real challenge is, what do you do next? And so this is really one of the conundrums in research of this type is how do you get a randomized control study around heroin from the peer-reviewed research realm and into medical practice. This is the final mile. So Small meets with Schechter, the researcher leading the Naomi trial, and he tells them, if you want to keep providing heroin to your participants after the trial ends, you're going to have to fight for it. And that researcher looked at me and said, that's not my job. My job is to essentially lay the data at the feet of policymakers, and I'm a scientist. I was quite taken aback when I heard that from him, and I was disappointed. Now, I don't want to be hard on Martin Schechter, um, because he was a you know, first-rate researcher, um, but the idea, hypothetically, is that when the science speaks, then presumably the policymakers will listen the skies will open and they will allow this to be a medical project. 
But that's not what happens. Martin thought this was, uh, you know, this was a tea party and we were eating cucumber sandwiches with the crust cut off. But it wasn't. It was an all-out um, metaphoric ballroom brawl. All right, Wendy, thanks very much. The latest report on what's happening in Quebec. Well, we can tell you we have seen enough. We've been checking the numbers, checking the figures. and are The political brawl over drug treatment begins in January 2006 with the election of Canada's Conservative Prime Minister, Stephen Harper. Harper is a law and order candidate who pledges to, quote, not use taxpayer money to fund drug use. Thank you. So let's listen in. Merci Thank you. We will reform our justice system to make it stronger and to ensure we turn back the growing plague of guns, gangs, and drugs in our cities and communities. Professor Schechter and his research team take a meeting with the local health authority. They present their initial findings from the Naomi trial. They also send letters to the government, they defend their work in the press, and they formally apply for compassionate access to heroin for their trial participants. But they say all of these attempts fall flat. We did as much as I think we could have to convince um, decision makers that the, the clinic should continue. The participants in the Naomi trial will have to transition to methadone, the very treatment Tobin says she and Thompson and all of the other trial participants have already failed several times. Oh, I was panicked. It was horrible. And everybody there just felt so discouraged, so lost. They finally had a way to, they were doing well, they were gaining weight, their health was good, they weren't stealing. And all of a sudden, you us right out in the cold, basically. Three months is up, winged you down, here's your last day, see you later. Thanks for coming out. <laughs> Fine, fend for yourself again. That's basically what they did to us. Again, Scott McDonald, Crosstown Clinic's doctor. Well, for many it meant returning to the street, returning to illicit opioid use and death. Many of my patients died. I can count at least 15. It was just bang, 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 dying. And, and it was all because of what happened with Naomi dropping us. The researchers say they lost track of many of the participants after the study ends. So there's no official confirmation of exactly how many Naomi participants died after the trial is over. After all the data have been analyzed, researchers Schechter and Oviedo Yukis report that Naomi produced exciting results. The participants treated with heroin did significantly better than those treated with methadone. Those in the heroin group were more likely to stay in treatment and less likely to turn to street drugs. Schechter is given the Norman Zinberg Award for Achievement in the Field of Medicine. This is an award that recognizes rigorous scientific research that may be, quote, at odds with the current dogma. Oviedo Yukes presents the findings in an article in one of the top medical journals in the world, but she says she doesn't feel like celebrating. I mean, we used to say, I, I told Martin, there is a saying in Spanish as, uh, la cirugía ha sido un éxito, pero el paciente está muerto. The surgery has been a success, but the patient is dead. 
that's how I felt. Uh, there was no joy of publishing in the New England Journal of Medicine. There was no joy at all. In the weeks and months after Naomi, Tobin starts looking for others who participated in the trial. She wants to start a support group. It was called the Naomi Association of Patients. We wanted to get everybody in Naomi to come to the meetings. They, they were trying to figure out a, some kind of legal angle to the whole thing, that somehow we, we had a legal case, you know, that we should be suing somebody for it. <laughs> this is Dave Murray. Murray's another participant in the Naomi trial. He's 66 years old and wears big glasses held together by tape. As a young man, Dave says he lived in Chicago, where he got into some legal trouble. Can you tell me about that? Uh, <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> I've had quite a, uh, a varied life, you know, and some of it, some of it I'm not that proud of. Some, some of it I don't often like to talk about. And uh, don't ask me another question. The Naomi Patients Association, or NPA, meets every Saturday at a local drug user center. It becomes a kind of support group. The members sometimes refer to themselves as survivors of the study. Uh, to me, that was really important and, and particularly moving. Like, what, what other research study in modern times are participants describing themselves as survivors of the study? This is Scott Bernstein. And I'm a British Columbia lawyer. I'm working on drug policy issues uh, primarily now. Bernstein works with Pivot Legal Society. That's a not-for-profit social justice law firm. He begins working with the NPA. Social justice lawyering is a bit different. You know, I think we, um, at, at Pivot, uh, we really were strongly invested as a member of the community. To a T, the, the lawyers at Pivot are very passionate and emotional about the issues that they're arguing. Bernstein says now that they have proof from Naomi that prescription heroin works, he, Tobin, and Murray, and all the members of the NPA want prescription heroin treatment to be available across Canada. But he says they don't know how to make that happen. You know, in, in our system of law, you, you can't just sue the government to say, give us a medical treatment. There's no legal basis to say you, you were entitled to receive um, this medical treatment that's recognized elsewhere as the gold standard, uh, and you have to pay for it. Like, there, there's just not, you know, there's not that basis uh, to do it, unfortunately. The NPA start to do their own research and advocacy. They team up with Professor Susan Boyd, a legal scholar and drug policy researcher at the University of Victoria. They publish a peer-reviewed paper about their experiences with Naomi. And their message is simple. It was unethical to give us treatment that worked and then take it away. And at the same time, Professor Oviedo Yukis comes up with an idea for a new research trial. And Salome came just because, you know, we don't have the pharmaceutical-grade heroin because everybody's closing our doors. So what options can we offer? Salome is a brand new trial that will test hydromorphone. Hydromorphone is chemically similar to heroin, but it's legal in Canada. Doctors prescribe it as a painkiller. So why not see if it could be used to treat heroin addiction? One day in the summer of 2011, Ovieta Yukis goes to a meeting at the local drug user center, Vandu, and she presents her proposal for this new trial. I was expecting six people, 
and there were 60, 80 uh, people using drugs that came. And then somebody asks the million-dollar question. What's going to happen to the participants at the end of this study? To tell you the truth, guys, I don't know. I will work very hard with everybody for this to continue. But I am not in a position to make any guarantees. And I said this to them. I had two options in front of me. Either do the study knowing that at six months I need to tell you to go back to the street or not doing the study. And I decided to do the study this way. I have no idea right now if that is the right decision. Oviedo Yukas tells the group if they sign up for this blind trial, she will be able to put some of them back on heroin and others on injectable hydromorphone. But she adds, not everybody in the room is going to make it into the trial. When I tell them that I can only include a short number of people because this is super expensive, I want the minimum number that I need to have power for my calculations, not because I have a demonic agenda, it's because we don't have money and we need to get it done and get results as soon as possible. And they are tremendously supportive. Instead of being pissed off at me, they were, no, you know, don't worry, we will support you. you. You are doing the right thing. I was kind of like amazed of how generous they are. So generous. Scott Bernstein, NPA's attorney, says he's not surprised at the room's reaction. After Naomi, the participants are desperate. And so one, one NPA member, and who was a Naomi patient, had articulated in the report they produced, uh, our, our life depends on this drug. Well, okay, so I mean, I would sign anything at that point. I'd probably say, which finger do you want? Or which arm do you want, you know? Oviedo Yukis begins recruiting participants for Salome in December of 2011. And many of the MPA members, including Thompson and Murray, sign up. But Tobin hesitates. Because I didn't know if the same thing would happen as Naomi. I wasn't positive that it wasn't going to go the same routine, so I was kind of leery. The researchers have a recruitment phone line that closes every day at 4 p.m. And on the very last day of recruitment for the first cohort, right when the line is about to close, Tobin is with another drug user. He's on the phone talking to the Salome researchers, asking if he can join the trial. And he's just about to put the phone down when Tobin says, wait. And I said, don't hang up. I want to talk. And I said I'd be on the study. And the next thing I know, they were telling me I was the first one on the study. Tobin walks back into Crosstown Clinic, this time as a participant in the Salome trial. Salome is run by a new health authority, Providence Healthcare, and it has an entirely new nursing staff. I walked into the injection room and about eight nurses and students and whoever they were that were working there came and they were right in front of my face, just hanging over my head to watch me do it. It was kind of funny because all of us nurses were, you know, interested in really like watching her inject. This is Julie Foreman, the head nurse at Crosstown. We hadn't actually ever watched somebody inject drugs before, I don't think, for most of us. Um, and luckily, she was a good sport about it. I told him to back off, get away, you know, like, you can't do that. It was always a private thing for me, so when there were eight people watching me do it, I said, I can't do it. Go away. 
and then we were all waiting for something to happen. <laughs> Nothing really happened. She didn't really change. She was this cheery woman, alert and vibrant when she walked in, and she was alert and vibrant when she left. And we were like, oh, okay. <laughs> Diane stands up and walks away from the table. The nurses are excited because this means that Salome is now underway, so they start to clap. Do you remember how you felt when everybody started clapping? Nothing. It was their, their time to clap. It had nothing to do with me. So this is, this is June 14, 2012. The memo line says regarding the legal and ethical issues of human opiate trials. Six months into Salome, many of the MPA members are still bitter about how Naomi ended. And they're worried the same thing will happen to them again at the end of this trial. So Scott Bernstein, their lawyer, sends a forceful letter to Providence Healthcare. It relied on uh, mostly something called the Helsinki Declaration. They're not allowed. It's not allowed to take the medicine away. If a study drug works for a person, the government can't take it away from them. The World Medical Association's Declaration of Helsinki. It's basically the Magna Carta of medical research ethics, and it says, if researchers can't continue an effective treatment after a trial, they need to provide another appropriate treatment option. And at the end of both studies, the researchers offered only methadone, a treatment that everyone in the study had already failed multiple times. Over at Crosstown Clinic, Dr. McDonald is concerned. He says he doesn't want to see his patients lose access to prescription heroin and be forced into a treatment program that he believes won't work. And so he tries another option. We started applying to Health Canada for, through the SAP, the Special Access Program for Compassionate Access to Diacetylmorphine. Health Canada's Special Access Program allows doctors to prescribe unlicensed drugs to patients with life-threatening conditions. McDonald begins writing up the requests. Each file includes the Naomi study results and... Past history of the, of the patient, whether they've had overdoses requiring resuscitation with Narcan, have they been in jail, how many charges, how many uh, uh, related infections, Hep C, HIV, all, all of those things. So this, this dossier is just like a litany of personal tragedies? Like, that sounds like a difficult document to write. And that is what every single one would be like. Probably 150 pages, and it requires, and it's fat, it still uses the fax system. So I want to make sure I understand. Like, it's not that your boss is breathing down your neck saying, "Put in, put all this work together, put these SAPs in." That's your job right now. This is like your leadership. Is that is that a fair characterization? I'm an advocate for my patients. They are participants in a study. If this is working, they need to have access to it. The only way to access it is through the SAP. So, uh, yeah. It was my, it was, it was my, partly my idea and force that made that happen. But I've worked in research studies before. This is just what you do. Somebody needs to believe in it. How did you show Health Canada that you and your team really believed in this? Well, we kept sending SAPs and didn't stop. <laughs> On September 20th, 2013, representatives of Health Canada call Crosstown Clinic. They ask... Is your fax machine broken? And I think we just had to put paper in the machine or something. So our our uh, uh, receptionist uh, clinic worker then was Sam. I said, Sam, we need, to, we need to get some paper in the machine. 
<laughs> well, that, they didn't say anything, but I had an inkling that something or so, something interesting is going to come through that fact. <laughs> one by one, letters from Health Canada buzzed through the fax machine. Accepted, accepted, accepted. Every SAP request is approved. This is the first time in North America that a government has approved the legal prescription of heroin to treat heroin addiction. Not just for a clinical trial, but for a treatment program. It was a, it was a big deal for us. We were very, very excited. Because it's acknowledgement that this is, Health Canada has put their stamp on uh, an injectable treatment option, diacetamorphine. That, that, yes, Health Canada approves that. Um, but then not much longer. That very morning. We are uh, here today to begin what I think is a much-needed conversation about the need to focus on the treatment and recovery of those who are addicted to drugs. This is Rana Ambrose, Canada's Minister of Health. This same day, Ambrose announces she is reversing the approvals by Health Canada, her own department. Then she holds a press conference. As you know, last week, I made public my serious concern about a decision by Health Canada to... Uh, give authorization to doctors to prescribe heroin to heroin addicts. The Prime Minister and I do not believe we are serving the best interests of those addicted to drugs and those who need our help the most by giving them the very drugs they are addicted to. The answer, of course, is not to treat heroin addiction with heroin. That's, I hope, obvious to all of you. So today I am announcing that our government has taken action to close this loophole that we found in the special access program. These new regulations will take effect immediately. Professor Oviedo Yukes. This is honestly stigma, pure and simple. There are very few treatments on addiction, in the addiction field that have provided evidence like the Salome study has done. I am seeing them every day, at least twice a day. I have an opportunity to build relationships to provide comprehensive care, and they are using pharmaceutical-grade medications instead of opiates in the street. Professor Oviedo Yukis says, people often ask her, shouldn't you try to get drug users to stop using drugs? Why don't you treat the root cause? But she says that's unrealistic. Well, for me to treat the root cause of the 202 Salome participants, I need the entire budget for Public Health Canada for two generations to heal for the cultural genocides, to heal for the child abuse that we see, to heal for the people that have been incarcerated over and over because they cannot stop using drugs in the street. So give me two generations of budget, and then maybe we can treat the root cause. Two months later, Pivot Legal, Providence Healthcare, and the Naomi Patients Association hold a press conference. They file a constitutional lawsuit against the federal government. If they win, this will reverse Minister Ambrose's decision. Dr. McDonald speaks to a pool of reporters. I need this tool in the addiction toolkit to help the people with this severe life-threatening illness. As a human being, as a Canadian, as a doctor, I want to be able to offer this treatment to the people who need it. It is effective, it is safe, and it works. You're fighting the federal government in a very, very public battle. And you're at the center of it at that press conference. You're right center stage talking about your patients. You're, you're crying about this. 
I had a message to tell. Some of that message uh, is about hope and fighting despair. And that is an emotional message. And I did not want to get emotional. <laughs> uh, but uh, now this is an evidence-based treatment. And if without it, some of my patients were going to die. And, uh, you know, here is hope. Hope for these folks that have not had any anything to give them care for years. And it's taken away. Uh, that, uh, I, I did get emotional. The drug users, the doctors, and the researchers are all gearing up for a big constitutional case. But it never happens. In 2016, Justin Trudeau replaces Stephen Harper as prime minister, and his government quietly reverses Ambrose's decision. This leaves Crosstown Clinic where it is today. McDonald reapplies for exemptions for each of his 91 heroin patients every six months. But McDonald, the researchers, the drug users, they all want something bigger. They want a formal program with clinics like Crosstown all over Canada. But very few politicians are pushing for that. Professor Oviedo Yukis. Why is it that with so much evidence, we are not moving forward? You have to start thinking that this is about the people we are serving. It's an unusually cold winter here in Vancouver. It's snowing. We're at a pop-up injection site, just like the trailer at the beginning of the story. A handful of drug users huddle in a vestibule. They're here to warm up, and they're here to shoot up. This is the main needle depot in all of North America. They had more syringes out here than all of North America. Kevin Thompson works here full-time now. His job today is to check people in as they show up to the site. Okay, just wait until he has a booth clean, Dred. How much do you usually do? Okay. Do you usually do a paper or two? Or? Yeah, I quarter that purple stuff will drop you. Thank you, Jasmine. These are friends that I've been with for years, and they're still playing the roulette game that I'm not. And, you know, I'm the one that's that's saving them. And... Thompson says he sees two or three overdoses at the injection site pretty much every shift, sometimes more. Then he walks six blocks over to Crosstown Clinic on his lunch break, where, as one of the 91 approved SAP patients, he takes his shot of clean prescription heroin. How do you, how do you deal with that, knowing that you, you kind of lucked out and you don't have to be a part of all of that, but then all your friends do? It disgusts me, really. And I'm losing. I've lost more friends now in this year, in this crisis that's happened, than I have in the whole 25 years I've been down here. Could you do this job if you didn't, if you weren't in the Crosstown Clinic right now? Well, of course not. No, I'd be back probably on the street. Or actually, the bottom line is I'd probably be dead because the vent holes. I'd have been one of those statistics. Guarantee you that. Wouldn't be doing this interview, that's for sure. Okay, your table's ready. Let's wait. You got it, buddy. 
Down the block from Crosstown Clinic, a group of drug users are holding a vigil to remember lost loved ones. They light candles and place them at the base of a tall totem pole. They call it the survivor's pole. In 2017, the overdose crisis in Vancouver hasn't shown any signs of slowing down. Dave Murray, a participant in both trials, says it's a disaster. You know, we're pretty, it's pretty devastating to community because there's, you know, hundreds of people that have died and most of us don't even know who the people are that, that have died anymore. We used to put pictures on the wall at Van Du of the people that weren't, you know, we lost and it's hard to keep up with it nowadays. You know, and you ask anybody at the Salome Clinic there, and they'll they'll just be they'll be so thank they're so thankful that they're in that clinic and that that's kept them alive. And uh, so we are yeah we are the luckiest junkies in North America, <laughs> that's for sure. Murray still goes to Crosstown Clinic. He says he's old and he'll probably never kick heroin. Thompson says he's weaning himself down. He hopes to get off heroin completely. And Diane Tobin says she doesn't go to Crosstown Clinic anymore. She's left Vancouver. So I was waking up every morning going to work and I'd hear somebody else died, somebody else died, somebody else died. And you didn't have time to grieve. I would have been at a memorial every day. I just, I, I got, finally, I got tired of it, and I told Doc, I'm going home, where I don't have to hear ambulances all day. After 40 years, Tobin says she successfully kicked the opiate habit, which would make her one of only two Crosstown patients that has gotten completely off opiates. Crosstown Clinic is doing some renovations this month. They're knocking down walls and expanding the pharmacy. And they hope that this will let them squeeze at least 30 more patients in. Dr. McDonald says just about every day, someone will come up and knock on the window looking to get in. But for now, Crosstown is an exclusive club and membership is closed. Heroin Town was produced by Sam Fenn, Gordon Caddock, Alexander Kim, and Travis Lupik of the podcast Cited. Visit their website, citedpodcast.com, for more stories about how research shapes our lives. Life of the Law's senior producer is Tony Gannon. Our post-production editors are Kirsten Jesuits Heidel and Rachel Kane. Our engineer was Howard Gelman of KQD Radio in San Francisco. Music in this episode was composed by producer Ian Koss. If you like stories about the law but have gotten tripped up by the legal system, tune into Life of the Law on iTunes. Take a few minutes to post your review, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Each time we publish a new episode, we send everyone who's subscribed to our newsletter a behind-the-scenes look at Life of the Law that includes notes from our reporters and news about upcoming investigative reports. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Panoply Network of Podcasts from Slate. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. We're funded by the Open Society Foundations, the Law and Society Association, and the National Science Foundation. We're also funded by you. 
visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org, and make a very much appreciated donation. Next on Life of the Law, our team will go in studio at KQD Radio in San Francisco to talk about Heroin Town, the law in the news, and to share a preview of our upcoming investigative report. Join us March 21st for Life of the Law's In Studio. That's next on Life of the Law. Visit our website and make a donation to support investigative journalism in 2017 and beyond. Your support is important. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening.